Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anirban Mahatney, Investment Advisor at 7investing. We're diving straight into results. We've got Redbubble, CSL, Prometicus, NetWealth, and Nearmap, amongst many others that we mentioned throughout the show. We get to the results about 20 or so minutes into the conversation, so feel free to skip ahead if you just want the meat from this podcast. This podcast was recorded in video via Zoom, so you can jump onto the Rask Australia YouTube page by jumping into the podcast player in front of you. That will show you a link to go and watch the full version. I think it's important because we actually share our screens and talk through the results and what to look for. Um, you can also find at the end of the show, 
two stock ideas for your watch list, one global growth company and a small cap Aussie company that's just created or just made a divestment. Really interesting businesses, both of them. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast and stay safe. G'day, mate. Welcome welcome back to the show. G'day, mate. Nice to be back again. Yeah. We, um, we crowdsourced some ideas for today's recording, which is great. We're recording this on Thursday, August 19th. And it will go live on the 21st at 7 a.m. We're recording in video too. So if you do have time, you can sit by the, the smart TV or phone or laptop or whatever and, and watch us. If you want to join in the conversation on Twitter, head to 7A Mahanti or at Owen Rask. You'll find the links in the show notes. You can actually have a chat with us. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think of the companies we're about to talk about, what's going on in reporting season, and so on and so forth. Anyway, mate. Um, How's lockdown? You, you just asked me that before. No, you let me vent out before that. Well, lockdown, well, look, lockdown is lockdown. Oh, it has its own. You know, I think the lockdown has a lot of uh, effect, I guess, on kids stuck at home. For people like us who are used, used to stay at home, the only thing really that has relatively changed for me is my opportunity to go and spend some time at my, at my favorite coffee shops and spend some money there mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and talk to some real people uh, in, in person. <laughs> That's changed for me. But what is, I think what's really changed, uh, and my wife works in healthcare, so um, she goes to work um every day uh, whereas uh, i think it's changed for my daughter in the sense that she's stuck at home and i think you know it's really lockdown is really hard on children so mm. that's my take yeah it's hard on children hard on parents hard on everyone but um children in particular like rely on it right they rely on the development um the community to get that kind of support that they need as they develop so yeah um okay so before we also talked about one other thing, just off. Uh, you know, I thought you know you just asked me the hard question. I was going to say you know like there was a time when Sydney was in lockdown, but yes. Melbourne wasn't. But now Melbourne is in lockdown too. So I can smile and ask you the same question: How's lockdown for you? I, so, sorry, well, I'm making a fun fun of this. Uh, oh, I, we're laughing. I'm it's sympa- okay. You got I'm it. Sympathetic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, if um, if you guys in New Zealand didn't uh, New Zealand New South Wales didn't spread it to us then we mm. wouldn't have got it and neither would New, uh, New Zealand or, or anywhere else. So you guys are to blame. Um, uh-huh. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But um, well, is that, here's, here's the funny thing, right? You right. Know, since you said New Zealand, let me just, I'll make a slight comment. Okay. Here. You know, so the Kiwis thought that, you know, they basically can keep a virus out by just pretending that the virus doesn't exist, right? <laughs> well, quarantine and everything else. You know, what I've been saying for a long time is the virus will find its way in. And in fact, if you think it's not going to find its way in, then you're going to be unprepared for it. <laughs> and it's going to then replicate <laughs> inside. And then you're going to find out, oh, there's a virus. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, well, that's my Bob's worth of, you know, viruses are very smart and they're really tiny and small. So that's about viruses. So, yeah, you can blame the New South Wales people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say we can blame the virus. Yeah, and, yeah. and you want to carry this forward, Delta, it came from India. So you can blame all the Indi- Indians like me. Uh, the Indians in turn can then blame the Chinese. <laughs> the Chinese can blame the bats and maybe the bats can blame the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how far back do we need to go? Um, now, to be honest with you, in, in all seriousness, um, yeah, I mean, lockdown's not great, right? Yeah, so definitely not great. Yeah. yeah, we're in the, as I've said to you and many others, we're in the middle of a reno as well. So the house is half done. You look around, you want to do things and this is too much. So I think a hard thing is actually, you know, we always talk about Apple on the show and we probably should, we should be able to challenge ourselves to see if we can go a week without it. 
mm-hmm. um, but seeing that I've just brought it up, um, have this investment in the Apple Watch, I've got to tell you, it's been one of the best investments I've made for health reasons mm-hmm. because it reminds me to get up and go for a walk, practice mindfulness, you know, it winds down my devices at night so I don't have as much light coming in and, you know, all these types of things. And I think during, I'm very fortunate if I could have pay some gratitude to a device uh, during lockdown, it's reminded me to keep busy, keep active. I hear of a lot of people during lockdown just kind of giving up on all their goals, which I understand. Um, I did that during the last lockdown. I think number four, we're in number six here in Victoria. Um, and I don't want to, I didn't want to go back there. So I'm glad, I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad for that and thankful for that. But yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate. You can't really see it on the screen here at the window, but like you, we have, you know, some green grass and some trees around us, which is really nice. Um, so just trying to be thank- thankful for all those things, mate, and enjoy reporting season. I-, I remember when I was in high school, my specialist maths teacher would say to me, you know, I don't know what you guys are worried about. Exam time is the best time of year <laughs> because you get to see and check in on everyone's reports and see how they've done. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's not my cup of tea. But now as an investor, I love these times of year because you get to see what's actually been going on. And we've got some great reports to to share with you today. Um, mate, before we get to that, you were saying just off air a moment ago that I think you've released five recommendations for seven investing and they've all done pretty well so far. You know, sh- short-term track record, you know, all that yeah. stuff. But- that was not supposed to be put out in public. Or in, uh, and, you know, this is not scripted. It's not in the script just for <laughs> anybody else. You know, I was just, you know, I was just trying to, well, I was just getting the steam out and, you know, it's like good to have a short-term win. Uh, no investor, I think, can have a 100% track record. So I fully expect not to have a 100% track record. And, and even just the beat with respect to the market, like, you know, if, if, that, if that just compounds, it's, it's some un, unholy <laughs> type of compounding. So it can't happen. Um, yeah, I've been pretty lucky, I think, you know, just in terms of timing of some of these stocks. Um, they've just been picked, you know, right before earnings. People thought they were overvalued. So maybe, but, you know, the earnings just turned out to be great. So, mm. but. Yeah. And we've got one for it at the end of the show. So um, be sure to listen on for that one, which is really interesting business. Um, but hey, you got to, sometimes I feel like with track records too, you just got to, you just got to take what you can in the short term. Sometimes, you know, it, it's great for fund managers. It's great for stock pickers. It's great for individuals to start out at a time when they can. It's fortuitous, lucky, whatever you want to call it. When you can start out and things actually go well from the beginning, um, it makes your track record yeah. look great. It makes you feel great. So kudos to you, mate. It's all going well so far and let's, let's um, expect it to continue, but maybe um, with a few bumps along the way. So um, I know you've been working, busy working on that. Um, we had in the show notes here just to talk all the, the talking points, just to talk about what we've been working on lately. I'll start perhaps just company reports this time of year is crazy with august um last night i was up to about 8 30 just going through some numbers i know a lot of people stay up later than that during this time of the year working um but we're actually releasing a, a report on nanosonics today so this is thursday um nanosonics is a really interesting australian business uh raymond who's one of our analysts a great analyst and editor um, of our rest media website he actually came out and found some really interesting things so he actually I won't give too much away, but one of the things that he did was actually said that his uncle was starting um, medical practice and, and needed a, an ultrasound disinfectant 
device, which Nanasonics creates, and then called all of the distributors in Australia, as well as all of the competitors and compared prices and uh, tried to get their inside scoop on, on the different products. And um, what he found was really interesting. So that's Nanasonics, ASX ticker code NAN. It's, I know it's a fan favorite because it's a big company, multi-billion dollar company, I think now. Um, how about you, mate? What have you been working on? So I know you've just got some recommendations. Anything interesting, any tidbits that you can share with us before we get into the companies? Yeah, um, what I've been working on. So uh, just general things. So, of course, always looking for companies, studying companies and things like that. But uh, I'm looking forward to Tesla's AI days tomorrow. That's I'm not working on that, but I'm, and I'm in um, <laughs> very much interested in seeing what, what's going to be there. Um, I've been, you know, I've worked on a report, which I think is interesting, um, which is about uh, sort of the state of cloud security, or not just cloud security, actually the state of security, computer networking security as mm-hmm. such. And I think that's pretty interesting. We're going to release that as a, as a special sort of free report. But um, how do you go about researching that? Well, well, so so researching that, so I have a background in compu- computing, so I know sort of what the tech um is right and then so i think the interesting thing here is the there's there used to be an accepted state of the art for okay this is how you secure your network infrastructure your it infrastructure and things like that but that's rapidly changing in in today's world because of cloud and because of multi-cloud and because of like you know hybrid cloud and private cloud and things like that right so there's a lot there's, there's a lot of shift happening. And then at the same time, there's a lot of more attacks happening, mm. which is also a function of just the, um, the expansion of the internet and the availability of internet and compute capabilities and things like that, right? So, you know, more people actually have access to horsepower to actually do attacks, launch attacks and be clever about it, right? Um, and sometimes hacking is a game because people think, well, you know, if I can hack most sec- some of the sec- most secure services, then, you know, I'm really good, right? It's like a, it's like a, high Mm -hmm. um and sometimes it's not really intent on doing uh bad things it's not necessarily a bad actor thing uh that's there too but it's just you know okay i can disrupt and that proves that i'm smart right Mm -hmm. or a bunch of people that proves that they're smart so uh, but there's been a rise so just looking at that and seeing the state of the art and what's changing and what's you know where sort of we are headed that that was really exciting thing to do Mm, right so did you say that would be a free report yeah, that'll be a free report. Yeah, in, okay. I think it should release in the, the week or so, next few days, I think we're hoping uh, it will mm-hmm. be available from our, our site. Yep, 7investing.com. That's great. I will have a read of that. Um, okay, so one thing um, that's really interesting is the jobless rate is, has been falling. I thought this was an interesting thing. It's not something that I necessarily follow really closely, but I guess it's one of the most important uh, barometers or benchmarks for assessing the health of the economy. Um, did you have any particular takeaways from this? And if so, yeah, can we action them as investors? Yeah, so like at, at a very high level, right? So it dropped below five, which is like a substantial, you know, I think it has not dropped below five in a long, long time uh, in Australia. Um, but I think if you look below it, actually it is the reason it has dropped below this is the pandemic or all the re- really the lockdowns because some people basically have, gotten out of the job market. They're not no longer looking for jobs because there are no jobs because things are locked down. And that has, I think, contributed to the number going down. Mm-hmm. So I think this, this is probably uh, a bit of a, you know, I guess a measurement anomaly or anomaly because of how things are, you know. Um, 
But the general trend, though, is, is, is interesting, right? Because the general trend has been that there are, there's some sort of competition for jobs happening. Mm. Um, the jobless, jobless numbers have been going down. If I had to hypothesize, I would say that, you know, it's mostly, um, you know, I think the, the issue is that we've always had a steady supply of different types of labor that comes into the market, whether it's holiday makers or at the high end, you know, specialized workforce. Now, none of those things are coming. Neither the high end is coming, nor the holiday making, you mm-hmm. know, holiday maker work, workforce um, is there. And that's basically providing um, impetus to um, drive the jobless uh, rate down. That's sustainable in the long run. I don't know. It's not that the system is creating more jobs than it, I guess it used to. So it's, I don't. So in other words, you know, I don't think it's a productivity gain as such. But that's my interpretation. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's a labor shortage caused, which is essentially caused by multitude of reasons. But yeah, so I wouldn't share this particular one largely because I think this is um, caused by the NSW lockdowns, for example. Mm. It's really interesting, just anecdotal evidence um, and feedback that I've been getting from a lot of small business owners is that it is incredibly difficult to get uh, labor. So particularly blue collar workers, workers. <clears throat> so many people have commented to me lately that, sorry, mate, they've commented to me lately that effectively they just can't find them for one reason or another. A lot of people are, you know, taking care of kids because of lockdowns and the, and the threat of lockdowns. A lot of people um, haven't had to go back to work, um, whether it's for stimulus reasons or for, or for what, whatever. whatever. Uh, um, we haven't had that issue at RASC. I can tell you that much. We've had a lot of people applying for jobs, but I've heard of people, um, for example, putting job ads out and not getting a bite for two or three months. So, mm-hmm. I mean, eventually that, that will trickle through, right? If it is, maybe this is a bit of, um, I guess, the number, you need to look into how the number is calculated. But beyond that, maybe perhaps... It's a it's a sign that wage inflation might come back. Yeah, may, may, maybe wage inflation comes back. You know, if, if wage inflation comes back, though, maybe that's not actually necessarily a good thing mm. <laughs> because that would mean um, interest rates kind of need to go up. If the interest rates actually start going up, that has its own whole set of other problems that it can cause. And I'm not really talking about equity valuations, right? I'm just saying that, you know, there's indebtedness that's around in the society that, you know, will now start costing more to service. Mm. Uh, so it's really, I mean, I don't know where the, you know, it's like a, I guess there's an equilibrium point, right? You know, there's, you want to be at that equilibrium point and not above or below that. Mm. So we'll see. Mm. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. Uh, infl- wage inflation is something that uh, central banks love. And I just have, you know, I just think that the wage inflation is very hard to get because of various reasons. And technology is one of the biggest reasons that, you know, you're not getting wage inflation. Mm. I don't think we do a good enough job of measuring that impact um, to really get a good handle on it, at least from what I've, I've seen so far. Um, okay, let's move on. One of, the, one of the comments that came through on Twitter was this idea of investing in Chinese tech now? Is this kind of the new normal or is this uh, a time when it's an opportunity for investors to get in cheap, so to speak? Um, You know, we know many of the big names like Alibaba, uh, Baidu, Tencent, all of these companies have been in and out of the news feed. You only have to watch Bloomberg for 10 minutes to know that something's going on. Can you maybe just fill us in on, on kind of what's happened um, some of the key things to, to be mindful of as well. 
Yeah. So I think it's very interesting. I don't really have a view. I can give a, I can give a, an overview of what's happening. So there's been a crackdown on, uh, on tech, China tech, right? So um, I don't know what exactly the reasons have been on crackdown, but there's, you know, various regulations have been pulled. Uh, you know, they've been asked to do certain things a certain way. There's fears that some of them are monopolies and things like that. Uh, that's one side. The other side of the story that's, that's been printed, and again, I'm not, you know, this is not my opinion, is that some of this has been done because there has been, you know, these uh, geopolitical tensions and between the US and China. A lot of the Chinese companies actually love to list um, at least, you know, uh, their scripts on, on the US, in the US markets. And uh, at least definitely they have ADRs and things like that. And those, those stocks are then held by investors there or global investors, right? So this is, a, uh, you know, some people are saying this is an indirect way to cause pain to investors, um, right? So I think DD, which went public, had some issues and stock catered after the IPO. You know, after IPO, stock catering is really regarded as a, as a bad thing. You could argue that it's actually a good thing in the sense that, you know, the, the people, the selling shareholders actually got a good deal, <laughs> right? Uh, if the stock goes up, then the selling shareholders actually got a bad deal, but that's not the usual interpretation. Depends um, what side of the fence you're on. But yeah, so it was painted as as a bad thing. So a lot of things like Alibaba, Tencent would look cheap relative to their scale and valuation. And um, so like you have to have a view on how this is going to play out. If there was a natural course for things to play out and the you know, geopolitical tensions didn't matter in this game, then there's definitely an argument to be made that these are cheap. And as an aggregate, you could basically buy a basket, for example, you could buy, like, you know, there's like a uh, ETF, the beta shares, Asian tigers ETF, uh, for example, it's, you know, for Australian listeners, they can just basically get the Asia ETF as a basket approach, right? And that they would get a good deal on the basket. Mm-hmm. And it includes X China stuff as well. Uh, but you have to believe that at some point, um, you the, these companies are going to be not impacted significantly by regulations and geopolitical tensions. And in that case, you, you know, you're basically getting a, like a, probably a 30%, 40% discount to where maybe it should be trading, right? Mm. So that you have to have the view. Um, that's what I think, you know, I, I don't know whether it's, a, it's an example of asymmetric payoffs, right? I mean, um, t- <laughs> tails means things don't work out. How bad can it get? I don't know. Maybe it can get really worse. Mm. Uh, you know, really, you know, but I don't know. That's my view. You have to have a view on the, the future of these companies. Mm. Um, I'm just looking at um, Alibaba's enterprise value to free cash flow in the past since June 20th. It's fallen from over 30 to now down to 18 times free cash flow. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really quite, cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite a retraction for a business that just a couple of years ago was, you know, touted as, you know, a game changer for Asia. So um, really, really interesting. Was this, was part of this crackdown um, when WeChat, Tencent's WeChat was was blocked as well? Was that? Yeah, part, part of, of that, I think, you know, well, it all started with, uh, with Jack Ma, right? Something happened with, you know, Jack yeah. Ma was underground. And since then, it's just been one after the other, there's been some issue or the other. Right now, it you know you could say that there's a market market power issue too, right? I mean, some of these companies have a lot of market power. If you think about like an Alibaba, Tencent, 
right? These are not small companies, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. even after all the you know share price drop, these are what like four or five hundred billion dollar market cap company, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I mean, the valuations are certainly attractive, um, and and the growth rates, right? So if you look at Alibaba's growth rates, it's not it's not like a company growing at ten percent. <laughs> It's a company growing at 30, 40%, you know, it's GMV probably is growing at like, you know, 50% or something mm-hmm. like that. So these, these are not just some, these are not just another large cap, slow growth company. These are, these are like, you know, blue chip, mm-hmm. high growth companies. <laughs> yeah. So like last year, last year, revenue growth of 41%. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, big numbers, huge, big numbers. So yeah. yeah. And so I've, I've always been concerned about them. I don't know if you have a view on this or not, but I've always been concerned about basically how you get exposure to them. Um, oh, yeah. Like you mentioned, there's the Asia ETF here in Australia. There are a couple of others that have exposure to China or Asia, generally speaking. Um, but there's a lot of issue around also kind of the legal structure of, of the companies as well and what you actually own. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of. I have never been worried about the legal structure, the voting rights and things like that. So there's like, you know, your weird structure with, the, you know, some holding company that has promised to pay its entirety of its profits into some other holding company that's Netherlands based and things like that. These are regulation based. What if, if you take the view that regulators aren't going to impinge upon the security holders of some form and are willing to let the companies run due course while following law, and then I think, you know, you needn't be concerned. But, you know, they're just, but, but the current sort of situation where there have been a string, you know, it sounds like too much of a coincidence, right? That every tech company out of China is under attack. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, when does it end? You don't know. Or which company is next? You don't know. I mean, those are the things, but you know, the valuations are attractive. These are, so these are really good companies. Like, I mean, if you think about the tech, you know, sort of the, they have been pushing forward, the forward thinking, high growth, you know, so. Mm. But yeah, exposure-wise, if you wanted direct exposure, you could buy ADRs or you could buy the stock directly of uh, Hong Kong mm-hmm. the Stock Exchange for many of them. Otherwise, an exposure via some ETF yeah. is, is an approach which gives you, gives you a basket of, you know, and maybe that's better to have a basket because, you know, you don't have to look at specific companies. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. When we opened our ETF service over the weekend, a lot of people were asking, um, you know, there's only one exposure to to Asia. Uh, why is that? Um, and I mean, there are a few answers for that. One of them is basically how much do you need? But the other one um, was just about what's the right exposure. Uh, we often take a an approach to Asian equities that is um, an active first approach just because um, with still some, uh, I guess, asymmetry around the information the that's available. I, I think that investors in the region can add alpha um so we've we've backed the fe femx etf um from fidelity so it's a it's a, it's a really interesting etf it's a, you could probably contrast that to the to the asian uh technology tigers if you wanted um yeah just a different more active exposure um we might move on to some companies if that's okay the first one that we've got on the list today is probably the one that's divided the market at least at the time of recording 
And just to put it in context, I think it was down 13% when it opened this morning. And the last I checked, this is Redbubble, is up 16%. So a 29% turnaround um, in a single day of trading. I said to the guys at the analysts at Rask this morning, because we've recommended this company previously, and I said to them, uh, and it's it's one that I own a very modest amount of shares in, um, I said, you know, I think you'll be surprised where it ends the day. I think at the beginning of the day, it's mostly retail investors who kind of react to things um, and speculation. And by the end of the day, you tend to have people with a bit more of an informed view of the news. And so if I just go over some of the high level numbers, um, marketplace revenue, oh, maybe just what it is. So Redbubble is a global platform that connects independent artists. So someone that wants to create something, say like a sticker or uh, something to go on a pencil case or an apron or a t-shirt or a cap or something like that. I'm an artist. I go to the platform. I upload my artwork. You can be a user. You go visit the platform via the app or via the website and you can get my creative on whatever thing that you want it on. So whether it's a cushion, a cap or whatever, you can get my artwork on that. Redbubble sits in the middle of that and some something called a fulfiller, which is like a manufacturing site. So you can think of a fulfiller just, yeah, just basically like a manufacturing site. They have dozens around the world. These are independent fulfillers. Redbubble takes the payment from you and then it sends that money to me and to the fulfiller um, in a few weeks time once, once they've got the payment cleared and what have you. And so that's what Redbubble does. Basically tries to attract artists and tries to attract uh, users onto the platform so then it can make this transaction happen. And it takes about, for every $100, it takes about $30 from the transaction, I believe. I'll just double check that. I've got the results here in front of me. Yeah, the take rate is around about $31. And so Redbubble came out this morning, um, $553 million of marketplace revenue. That's what they call it. Um, and artists got about $104 million of that. Gross profit at $223 million, and it ended the period with $99 million of cash in the bank. The thing to keep in mind with Redbubble is obviously we've just, we're starting to lap a lot of the COVID numbers from a year ago. So during COVID last year, people didn't know where to get their masks. You'll probably remember that everyone didn't know where they could get a mask. The N95s had sold out. So what's the next best thing? Typically, it was um, your auntie or uncle who, know, who knew how to sew would send you a mask and you would use that. But the other thing that you could do is you could jump onto Redbubble and you could get a custom-made mask and get it delivered to you. And so that artificially propped up results. Another thing that we just saw across all businesses from Microsoft and Amazon right down to businesses like this, we saw that you know, there's a massive, in some instances, a pull forward of demand, or sometimes it just accelerated demand and the structural shift was already in play. It just kind of sped it up a bit. Um, Redbubble was definitely um, a beneficiary of that trend. It, its cash flow was huge and it really, really just took it in its stride. But this year we're starting to see it lap that. So the concern amongst most investors, as far as I can see, I mean, there are some first level thinking type investors out there um, approaching it saying it's got very thin margins. Um, it's more like a retailer, therefore it, it is risky, um, who perhaps don't really understand the business model. But then there are people who say that this is kind of like a one-trick pony. Maybe it doesn't come back. 
Um, the thing that I would like people to keep in mind, my, my concern was that um, basically it would have to ramp spending. In the past, Redbubble was dependent on Google search to get all of its customer acquisition. That's not so much the case anymore with around, I think it's around about 50% or more of the, the marketplace revenue now being conducted on app. Um, and a lot of that, I think about 42% is repeat usage. So more customers staying with them, more customers coming through the app to pay um, is positive. The other thing that I'll add is that there has been a lot of criticism of Redbubble and its inability to deal with fakes and people that upload content, which is not legitimate. And so it infringes upon um, intellectual property rights. On the call this morning, uh, management effectively said that they disagree with some of the uh, some court findings, which may suggest, or analyst views, which may suggest that they didn't do enough. Um, the other thing, they didn't really, you know, have too much pushback against. Yes, you know, this has happened. People are using the platform to sell goods, which probably do infringe on copyright. But we do our best to get rid of it asap. My understanding of it, and a lot of this is still in the courts, is that because. Redbubble inadvertently, you could say, or indirectly acts as the fulfiller, even though it's not, it's a third party that does that. That opens it up to different forms of litigation than, say, Amazon, which is completely outsourced, or some other type of like Etsy, like a platform like that. So, in the short of it is, I came away very positive about the company, to be honest. And I know that's very, very stark compared to what we've seen on in the Twitter sphere and the Twitterati, um, a lot of lot of people that don't agree with that view. Um, but I think as the business scales, attracts more artists, attracts more users, um, we're going to see more cash flow spin out of it over time. The next six months are going to be very tough as I keep lapping COVID. Um, anyway, I could go on forever, but to be honest, I the, the stock was down 13% when I met with the team this morning and they didn't know as much about it as I did. And they said, I said, what do, you, what do you think of it? And they said, oh, you know, there's this and, and this and that. And I said, you know, I think, I think it was actually a brilliant result. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the shares shoot up from here. I don't know, no day trader. But um, anyway, as, as I just finished my spiel, mate, before I let you go, um, shares are up 18%. So um, quite the reversal. You should have bought some shares in the morning. I know. It was down 13 or whatever. And you have made a killing. I know, but the thing is, one, I'm no good at that stuff. If I put money down, it probably would have kept going down. Um, and the second thing is I have to wait five days anyway because of our trading rules. So by then, who knows what would what would be happening? So um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we I should I act like I'm, I probably sound like I'm quite smug here, but we're actually well underwater with where we recommended Redbubble. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that it's up so far. I acknowledge that there's still a lot of risks. But I think a lot of the cash flows here to stay, I think a lot of people, a lot of investors, generally speaking, have had trouble differentiating between what has been pulling forward a structural thematic and pulling forward something just because it was during COVID and during lockdown. And so I think this is more along the structural lines. I think more people want bespoke creative goods. And I think Redbubble has the potential to become uh, basically the internet's repository for creative creativity because 
once an artist comes to the platform and puts their creates their let's call it a, a, a shopping site or um, like their own little author profile, once they've created that, there is no incentive for them to leave because they may as well keep the art there. Because in six months or a year from now, someone might want whatever that was and put it on their mug, in which case they get paid for doing having no incremental effort. So I think that's something that's 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 quite interesting. You know, we don't release this podcast for another two days, but the um, the share price is now up 18%. So I think we're moving the market um, every, <laughs> every minute that we talk about it. But anyway, I don't know. That was my company. Um, it was kind of like a fan favorite today in terms of very polarizing, but I still really like the business. I own some shares. I'll probably buy more in a few weeks, but yeah, that's Redbubble. Yeah, I like the there's a, there's some this is like a three sided network, right? You know, you have it people is. coming in, which bring the artists. The artists are going to bring the people, uh, right? And then more people coming in means it's worthwhile for the artists. And then there are more fulfillment. You know, people will come in because it's you know they're getting some work. Mm. So I think it's an, it's an interesting model. Um, yeah, and and but this problem of COVID lap up is going to be there for a lot of businesses, right? I mean, that's it. Um, you know, a lot of online businesses are going to have this issue of COVID. And so I think thinking about it more long-term normalized mm. is, is really useful, right? And the way to think about this is, let's say it does it, you know, you said what it was 50%, 60% growth this year or something like that, or some ridiculous number. I think it's 40, or, 47%. Okay, so some ridiculously high number, 47%, right? Let's, let's say next year it grows only 10%. Mm. But it's that 10% on top of the 47% that it did is, it's a much larger base, right? Mm. And you can normalize that and average that and say, well, you know, it's 10% here plus 47%. I'm just making up the number. I don't know what the guidance is, but you know, whatever it is, it's on top of that. So that's just something to, you know, as long as it's not going backwards, I guess, that means it's growing its network, which which I think is really powerful. Well, I wouldn't be surprised cool. to see growth rates go back slightly backwards in the, the second half, um, just simply because, it has grown so quickly. And I think the experience of Etsy and Pinterest has shown us that, um, you know, when people get out of the home, um, it can actually have an impact. That said, Australia's, and I made this point on the call, Australia is the exception. Um, most of the world is no longer in lockdown. So they are out doing things. They are out spending money. And, um, you know, the, t- the that kind of the mentality that we have right now, and I think this is something investors always fall foul to is kind of the recency bias and how mm-hmm. kind of our personal experience impacts our view of things at large. Um, I think that once we return to regular programming, I, I tend to believe that it will be very strong. Um, it's been, this company, I believe, has been around for over a decade now. It, it's not a business. It survived perfectly well, not in COVID. Yes, COVID accelerated it, but I think it's now got a foothold to reinvest more back into the business. I would actually show you, I don't, it's right over in the corner there. Um, I do actually have a print from Redbubble and this is an interesting little thing. People don't understand this, but I, I often have that on some podcasts. It's got some of you, you who've watched our podcast before may know it's got Warren Buffett dressed up as like a Marilyn. It's kind of like a creative version of Warren Buffett. And I reckon I've had about four other podcasters reach out to me to say, hey, where'd you get that print from? I want one for my backdrop. Um, and so that's a little, a tiny little network effect for Redbubble there. Um, so it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting business anyway. Um, let's go from one company with a red logo to another company with a red logo, um, which is a much bigger company, mate. Um, one of the comments <laughs> that came through on 
on Twitter was, can you take a look at CSL? I've got to admit, I don't follow CSL that closely. Uh, Rudy Philippek van Dyke, who many of you will know, uh, regularly appears on Ausbiz and elsewhere, suggested that it's it was an interesting year, but the the real the secret is kind of what happens next in terms of blood plasma collection. Can you just fill us in for those people like me who don't really follow CSL that closely? What it does? And, uh, so and CSL, yeah. So CSL. Well, I don't follow it that closely. I actually follow it for different reasons. I find. Um, it is an interesting company of what I call an overpriced stock that has been overpriced for a decade. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean I am wrong. I haven't been saying it's overpriced, but I've been saying it's overpriced for some time. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Uh, it's it just it's just it's just a fascinating example of what investor interest can do to actually show. Well, you said small stock prices move. This is a classic example of uh, um, you know superannuation funds <laughs> responsible for bumping up the price of one of the probably the largest company uh, on the ASX. So uh, at a very high level, it has two business lines, right? It has a blood plasma business line, basically mm-hmm. bloods uh, and various things that you need uh, for bloods, platelets, and God knows what else. Uh, it's called blood plasma. And it has basically a vaccine line, basically which is a flu line, right? Um, none of them, you would, if you think about it, none of them are, I would say, um, you know, bloods have been around for the longest possible time mm. and flu has been around and flu vaccines have been around and they're largely, you know, on some years, they're largely ineffective. They have only 40% effectiveness on some years. So, I mean, flu vaccines and there are a lot, there's a lot of competition in that space. Right. So, yeah. So in my mind, it is basically another biotech that does a couple of different things, uh, does them well. And um, yeah. And, and then if you I feel like you're going to get, in, I feel like you're going to get in trouble there's going to be some backlash. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I'm just saying that, you know, influenza vaccines, you know, like it's a, it's a viral vector vaccine. Everybody may, here's, here's the classic example I like to give for this. People don't realize this, but do you know that which, which is the largest vaccine maker in the world? I don't know. You can guess where it is. It's a is private it? company called Serum Institute in India in Pune. Okay. Right. Guess what vaccine it's making right now? It's making the AstraZeneca vaccine, just like CSL is producing, right? Anybody can, you know, on, I guess anybody can manufacture these vaccines, um, viral vector vaccines, if you find the ingredients and have the manufacturing plant. It's not cutting edge, is my point, mm-hmm. right? Uh, similarly, I guess blood plasma thing, I mean, there are Largan and others also do blood plasma. There are hundreds of companies that do blood plasma. They, you know, they do it well. The other thing to keep in mind is like, I mean, revenue is up 10%, right? I mean, this company is is priced with what well, God knows what the PE is, but it's some uh, <laughs> sky high PE for a company that's growing revenue at 10%. Uh, so I just find it as a very interesting case of, um, no, I'll share a screen like we always do, um, mm-hmm. just to make it interesting, right? Uh, screen sharing has, you know, Owen likes to keep tight control on me, so the screen sharing has been disabled. <laughs> um, I've got to so, change well, that. <laughs> um, yeah, so now the, let's try again. Oh, he's still disabled. He just doesn't want me to. There you go. Give it a shot now. There we go. Uh, and while you do that, I've got the P, P ratio here in front of me. Um, or price to revenues for CSL, 10 times revenue is what it's at at the moment. Um, the interesting thing. Yeah. So, uh, yep, sorry, you go. so let's, you know, so PE is what, like, is about nearly 38 or something like that? I think it's 40. 40. Okay. Yep. So you've got your company growing net profit here, 10%. 
revenue up 10%, right? Mm -hmm. And it's basically, you know, CSL bearing, which is all these, uh, you know, blood stuff and then the Securus, which is basically the uh, vaccine stuff. Um, no, they're one of the leading producers in 130 million doses distributed globally. Uh, it was a good year for distributing them. Um, the other thing that I like looking for this company is, uh, which is probably not in this slide. Let's see if they give that. Is oh, here's, here's so financial highlight. You know, everybody here likes to talk about EBIT and all those nice things. EBIT margins are pretty high. Mm. Um, what I like to look at is. Okay, for a company with a hundred billion dollar plus market capitalization, what's the free cash flow that you generate, mm. <laughs> right? And the the thing with this company is that it has pretty high. That's one thing I think the slides don't talk about, which I think I find very interesting about that. <laughs> slides don't talk about free cash flow. Um, I will point out the Tesla slides do talk about free cash flow, uh, just to just to uh, further <laughs> antagonize some people. Um, $1.1 billion, I think, is the free cash flow. That's according this, to yeah. Cap IQ. Yeah. That's well, forward, yeah, so, forward factors. Forward factors. Forward factors, right. I mean, if you go back to 2012, 2013, 2014, somewhere like that, it's been roughly around that point. Mm. Yeah, it's been pretty right? consistent. Pretty consistent around that, you know, one. And some years is a little bit more, maybe $2 billion or so, um, and, and things like that. So really, if this is a $100 billion plus company and you're looking at discounted discounting the 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 future free cash flows you really have to have some very high expectations of free cash flow you know dynamics right uh going into the future to mm. justify sort of the valuation that's been my knock against it's my knock is not against the company it's 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 a good company it's not a great company but it's priced like a great company mm. right and i think that's my that's it's a good one. company yeah. That's my takeaway, basically, right? And I mean, at the, anybody owning this company basically is making the bet, uh, and thus far they would have been right that the, the you know the 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 multiple is going to expand at a faster rate than their profits of free cash flow. <laughs> What's interesting right. about this? So, eighty-seven times um, free cash flow is the current multiple. Uh, but what's interesting? I don't know if you've picked up on this over the years too, is that CSL's debt has been growing rapidly over the past five years, maybe say five to eight years. And yep. it's basically transitioned, in my opinion, from operating leverage into financial leverage. So, yes. and I think that explains why some of the, you know, the dividends have been growing uh, and some of the other things like the ROE has been growing um, because that obviously doesn't capture debt. So a few things about it have been, you know, a few of the metrics have been moving, you know, up pretty well. But I think if you do, as you say, focus on that, free cash flow line, you probably, you know, as traditional kind of analysts focusing on that metric, it probably hasn't been as inspiring, you could say. Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, as you said, like if you're generating, say, let's say $2 billion of free cash flow and you're, you know, and, and this is actually, I think, American dollars, right? So let's say you generate, you know, whatever, $2 billion Australian, mm -hmm. let's give or take, at $130 billion, whatever is the market capitalization, you're paying a lot, very high multiple, right? And my, and, and my usual comment to this is <laughs> before owning a blue chip, like let's just go buy Apple, <laughs> and people will come back over oh, Apple is not a biotech. I said, why do you really need a biotech, which is, you know, just, you know, puddling along, generating some small, tiny amounts of free cash flow. You could have hundreds of, they could buy a CSL every year. Just buy that. 
<laughs> right? And they would probably not buy a CSL because they would be saying, oh, they would look at it and say, this is ridiculous. We're not going to buy CSL. We're just going to buy our own shares instead. <laughs> so that's my, that's my knock. But yeah, hey, um, I, I think this is a perfect example of um, a phenomena of, you know, people, funds moving and funds being restricted to say buying, say blue chip, right? You might actually find the, the, the fund that is buying blue chip is not going to be buying Redbubble <laughs> as a mm. classic example, right? And, and the number of blue chip companies that you can find with a profit and, you know, with a good ROE, which is showing on a, show, show up on the screen, is going to be actually really tiny. And that's pushing the price up, especially for those funds that are just restricted to looking at the assets. They are not looking at the smaller ones <laughs> because mm. they can't or their mandate says they sh- shouldn't. And this is a classic example, I think, of demand supply distortion. Anyway, that's my take. Um, again, I have no way to prove it, but I think that's, you know, I think nobody can justify the price on a future free cash flow discounted basis. I think that's probably the problem. Mm. That's um, polarizing. We've picked two polarizing companies so far. Red that's logos, red, red logos, blood red, everyone's <laughs> just blood boils and yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll face the backlash uh, when this goes live. But yeah, so it's a really interesting business. Um, I think there'll be people with opinions on this one, you know, for or against. Um, it's not it's not a company I've ever owned just simply because I just haven't owned it and I haven't really thought about it too much in terms of being like a growth idea. But I know a lot of people have done really well. I think it's, you know, it's CSL, Combank and BHP are the, the age-old, three-decade-old kind of look how well, you know, these, these Australian blue chips have done. Um, so this is definitely one of those three. Um, the next company which we have on our list, which is um, surprise, surprise, is ProMedicus, which from one healthcare company to another or health tech company, um, ProMedicus creates two pieces of software for those people who don't know it. One um, is an inf- uh, radiology information s- software or system. It's called RIS, R-A-S. Uh, and the other one is something called Visage. And Visage is basically, if I could explain it in the loosest possible terms, it's basically Netflix for radiology images. So you're in a hospital environment, you take, say, an X-ray, um, and then it appears on someone's iPhone being you know, a radiologist or doctor, and they can inspect the images. Uh, the way ProMedicus monetizes its business is it forms agreements with hospital systems, predominantly in the USA, for Visage, um, where it can uh, monetize through a very modest kind of upfront fee, but uh, mainly based on usage. So for every exam that goes through, they, they clip the ticket. And I'll share my screen with people um, just so we can all play along. Share screen. Here we go. Share that one. And I'll bring it up if I can get this out of the way. We have, that is not the right company. Here we go. So we've got ProMedicus. Um, as I said, it does Visage and Visage RIS or RAS. Just there on the left. RIS is mainly an Australian story. Visage is the US story. Um, they actually acquired the underlying technology for Visage. It was all completely built in um, in Germany, where they still have their development team and their head of technology and their head of uh, development. So the business, yeah, obviously has grown very strongly um, over the last few years. I think it is probably the I would dare say maybe the highest quality software company on the ASX. I know that might be a stretch for some people, but for me, it definitely isn't. It's a company we recommended many years ago um, and it's doing quite well. I've interviewed Sam Hupert for the show as well. Some of our regular listeners will know that he was on the program not too long ago. Um, But here we go. We've got the exam um, licensing uh, revenue split. And you can see here a lot of this revenue 
uh, is recurring in nature, super high margin recurring revenue. Um, you know, an EBIT margin north of 50% um, is the norm for ProMedicus. Um, and the reason that it can do that is once it installs um, its archives and its rendering software and solutions, it can basically just clip the ticket on very, very low margins, uh, incremental costs, I should say. So it's a really interesting business. If you go through and you look at it, one of the figures that they'll constantly talk about is this thing called forward revenue. Uh, Sam on the call this week said that they've effectively baked in 320 million Australian dollars um, of revenue over the next five years, but most contracts are seven years. So there's two extra years for free on the end there. But at the end of the day, mate, what this comes back to is valuation. Um, you know, this is a company with a multi-billion dollar um, valuation as it stands. And the reality is that $320 million, while growing rapidly, and I'm very impressed with that, it actually pales in comparison to the market cap. So I guess some of the things that you want to look at, a friend of the show, Claude Walker, who I know you know, um, Claude always asks this question on the analyst calls. And I love, I love it that he does it because it makes my job easier. He asks, does, have you lost a tender that you've gone for this year? So just have you lost you know, your ability to win a new customer? Um, and every year the answer is no. And I think when you have a piece of medical software, they've got the Mayo Clinic, which is obviously probably the number one hospital system in the US. Um, that's a really good coattail to ride on. But I think when you don't lose, and there are so many competitors like Fujifilm and many others out there in the market, it's a sign that your product is better when you haven't lost one. Um, he said sometimes they might not win if they if it's not really a fair tender, but they've never lost a competitive tender and they charge more. So signs of a good moat, you know, your ability to retain customers and your ability to charge them more. Uh, ProMedicus does that. I personally, I wouldn't buy shares today. I saw an analyst note come out that valued ProMedicus at, I think it was $56 per share. Um, my last valuation was in the 20s. So I don't know how there's such a disparity between what they're thinking and what I'm thinking, but um, I'm more willing to trust my numbers. Um, the company you know, is over $60 per share at the moment. Uh, it's just a stretch valuation, mate. I, I don't know, have much more to say, um, but if you're, if you're watching the company, just look at the deals that it's getting. Um, make sure it's renewing all those contracts. There was one deal in California, which is taking longer to renew, but that's for reasons outside of, I guess, the product. Analysts tend to um, get their knickers tied in a knot when they look at the um, receivables position, but that's often just uh, a function of the business scaling with its exam revenue. So um, yeah, ultimately, at 72 times forward revenues, it's just not cheap. If CSLs expensive this is expensive this is expensive amongst csls so <laughs> that's pretty much my that's pretty much my rant on on primitives i still own stock i sold a bit um i got a spiffy pop yesterday when my my that means that my the, the value of my shares increased by the value of my investment when i first made the investment in a single day um i got a spiffy pop so 100% but um i think andrew page it's probably the number one on this. He got a 7X spiffy pop yesterday, meaning the value of his original investment went up seven times yesterday. So 
you only get that through extremely long time horizons as an investor. I don't know if you've had one of them on Tesla yet, but um, yeah, I, I have a small slice and I'm keep, I'm happy to keep holding Prometicus. Still not my biggest position though. So yeah, that's Prometicus. Uh, like it, love it, but wouldn't buy it right now. I don't have anything to add on Prometheus. I guess the only thing I'll, I'll add is one thing that's worthwhile thinking about for companies like this. So when you've got that kind of margin, right, the margin is really high. Mm. If, you can, if you can have an EBITDA margin north of 40% and you have recurring revenue, and I was just looking at the list of names, right? You've got Mayo Clinic, you know, you said best in the US, I'd say one of the best in the world. Mm. If you have a critical illness that nobody else can actually treat, you probably want to go to Mayo Clinic if you can afford it. Uh, UCLA Health, those names that they've got, those are top tier names. Like they have some of the best people there. Um, so winning like Halo clients is really a big deal. The only, I guess the way that I think about this and approach this is maybe 70 times, you know, here's a, the counter question, maybe 70 times is actually maybe not that expensive forward. If this was growing at say 50% or 100%, right? If this revenue was growing at 100%, then what is 70 times today is tomorrow in, in a year's time is 35 times. And then, mm. you know, next year it's like 17 times, right? So it becomes cheap. Um, the thing to, you know, my recollection with ProMedicus has always been that it's not, does not grow at that fast pace. It's probably a 20, 25% growth rate company at a KGAR basis mm. um, historically. So therefore you have to think even more closely at the valuation because it's not growing at hundred percent. Um then the only other question I would say is that, you know, one of the advantages of being in a niche area is, is that maybe the competition is, is not, you know, is not enough. And therefore, if you have, if you have made up a big name of, for yourself and your software is really good and your services are really good, then you win that. Mm. Probably, you, you know, it's like a winner's takes most or maybe, you know, a couple of people are going to own the marketplace. So the, the way I think about this is what's the TAM, mm. right? And then on these sort of things, you you know, if you think of the TAM as say, X billion dollars, and then you can get to 60% of that TAM, and there's no reason to believe that over a long period of time that, that TAM could actually you know deliver you consistent cash flows for decades, a couple of decades maybe, a decade and a half. Mm. That's a good framework to think about this. So that's for those people interested in thinking about you know the expensive valuation. And I'm not saying it's cheap at all. <laughs> Seventy times for like 25% growth rate in my books is expensive. Like you know, in in my filtering rate, I would filter that out. But I would <laughs> I would caution uh, by saying that maybe there is something here to think about because those margins are really really special, right? And then those names that you've got are really really special. Those two things basically say something uh, about the company, right? So that's just, you know, just a random thought mm. or something to think about. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, so just as a really loose rule of thumb, um, Sam gets asked about this a lot, about the TAM. And when he came on the podcast a while ago, he mentioned a figure that might suggest the TAM is a billion dollars, right? So okay. um, if you assume, say, $250 million of revenue by the end of the decade, say, you know, 25% share. Maybe it grows faster than that. I think the constant currency kind of masks the actual top line growth. So I think it's actually growing quite quickly. But I take your point. If if you can find the company that grows at those rates, it, it, it heals a lot of the valuation wounds, so to speak. And so um, I'm still yet to update my valuation. It might be, you know, $30. It might be a bit more. But one of the things, so a couple of the things to be mindful of is that they've talked about this move into lung and breast. 
um, as potential areas of interest for their for their software and for their research hub that they've just started um, out of NYU, I believe, in um, in New York. They're, they're starting this kind of incubator. They've got one FDA approval across the line for an AI algorithm for breast density, which is really interesting. That's the space of Volpara for those of you who follow that company quite well. Um, so it's a really interesting way to expand the TAM. I think they have so many opportunities in front of them. One of the things that kind of irked me yesterday, mate, was on the call with Sam and, and Promedicus. There are a lot of investment bankers and there were a few questions brought up about M&A and that type of stuff. And I just hope that they don't go down that path too soon. I trust, I fully back Promedicus's management, but you know as well as I do that when investment bankers kind of sink their teeth in, they have you on speed dial if you've got a bit of cash. So, um, <laughs> and that can end in disaster a few years down the track. So, um, yeah, it's cashed up, could make some acquisitions, maybe expanding into other ologies and also got the AI accelerator, which is kind of cool. So, um, we should probably move on to the next company before we draw this out forever. Um, mm-hmm. which it's, I love it, but um, our listeners are probably thinking, it's just a long conversation. Um, net wealth. Really interesting business. We've got a great lineup of companies here today. Net wealth. Uh, tell us about it. What does it do? What was the result all about? Go for it. Yeah. So I'm going to just try to keep the next two shorter. So net wealth is basically a wealth management business. Basically, uh, you know, it it if you it can it it's independent advisors who manage money for others. They want a platform for managing those funds, and net wealth is that modern platform that they would use. Um, and it would basically cut it. It basically is a you know it's like a toll booth, right? So it takes a small percentage of assets under man- management as fees. That's a very high level view of mm. this this company. So basically, it's a software platform company, and it's been growing really, really um, you know nicely. So I'll quickly share a slide like I do because that makes it easier. Let's have a look at NetWealth presentation. So while you're doing that, for those people that are listening, um, NetWealth competes against the likes of Hub24, which is another company that you might have seen on the ASX. Cool. Here we go. We've got NetWealth's Preso. All right. We've got NetWealth's Preso. So the number of things, uh, first thing I would look at here. So again, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, um, Hain, the Hain Senior. Yeah. Or Hein Heina Senior, as he like to call his German name, and I probably butchered it again. Uh, <laughs> wa- okay. wa- wonderful, um, you know, business person, uh, entrepreneur, uh, really brilliant outlook. Um, which uh, I really, you know, I love that when I see that in a company's um, founder manager. Um, really, really good. So. Really strong, you know, income is uh, is total income is pretty high, bid is pretty high, bit of margin. Again, this is another one of those companies with really high operating, EBITDA margin. Yeah, yeah, operating margin. This is really, really fantastic. This is a cash generating machine. It's a dividend generating machine as well. Um, and and look at this the thing to look at here is look at the fund. Uh, so fund, funds under advisement up, you know, nearly 50%, funds under management up nearly 60%, right? I mean, you know, look at the growth of clients, right? And this is really, really solid. And I think the way to think, I have to always start with this business is just thinking about the landscape, right? So landscape is dominated by uh, the folks like AMP, <laughs> AMP, um, <laughs> you know, BT Westpac, uh, you know, IUF Group, uh, Macquarie. 
and you know, and then there are the comp, the the, the new age platform guys, uh, NetWealth, uh, I guess, um, the Hub Twenty Four Premium or yeah. Premium, right? And they're they're taking share, right? So they're taking a lot of the inflows, right? So they're num- so the, the thing to think about it is the think about total market share. The number not number six with a very tiny market share. If you look at the left hand side of the graph, right, um, mm-hmm. but like four percent, five percent. But look at this graph where this you showed, you know, they are number one when it comes to net inflows. Yeah. Right. So, you know, this is a this is a this is a trend that's going in their favor. And that I think is is really good. And then the market is huge. It's a humongous market in which they're playing. So and and again, it's a software business. I really like it. I think you know the valuation probably is also very reasonable. Uh, I think the shares were down on results. I'm not sure why. Maybe they didn't meet expectations. So again, they say I think you know, it was large... margin margin compression. So just the yeah. competition and offering discounts. Um... Competition offering discounts. But I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, margin. People are always worried about margin, but you know, you can take a hit on margin if that means that you can get a larger piece of the pie, mm. right? Because then, then they work out to be the same thing. You can have a smaller piece of the pie and have a higher margin, or you can take a larger piece of the pie and have a little bit less margin, right? So instead of making your margin as my opportunity, you if you are the leader, you want to probably compete a bit on price as well. I think that's pretty smart. So again, um, and once you capture the audience for these businesses, it's very sticky because it's not it's like very the, the advisor is going to uproot all of the, the client's money and run off to hub if it was a hard integration or or transition so if you've got pricing power and you got you got you know staying power exactly get them in the door so yeah so i I like i've always liked net wealth um you know it doesn't it doesn't i think it doesn't have that kind of love uh it it doesn't have the pro medicus kind of love but has a similar type of you know margin profile that's in a big market it's growing really quickly uh solid balance sheet and all those good things so Maybe it's one for the watch list for people to put on and just have yep. a look and just have a dig through. And uh, I'll just say premium, for example, was beaten down for a long, long time until it, was. it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> right? Again, sometimes you just have to be a little bit patient with some some companies. So yeah, I like I really like net wealth. Um, yeah, we've recommended it. I'm happy to buy shares today. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, one I like more it that you've recommended it. Yeah. <laughs> we got one more, we got one more company before we get into some stocks to watch. Um, what what is it, man? This is an interesting. Oh, one. this is near map. This is another favorite, or used to. This was used to be used to be a uh, favorite. Used to be a favorite until it is not. It wasn't right. I mean, the stock price at one point had run up. They had a two plus or three plus billion dollar valuation at one point. Uh, I think it's half of that <laughs> right now. Uh, so, companies called near map. They basically take maps uh, or what you would call is low flying aircraft driven maps, which are useful for things like, so when I put got solar put, for example, on my roof, um, well, the software that they used, used maps from near map, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty standard, actually, across, it looks like the solar industry in Australia, parts of America and New Zealand and things like that. So they do mapping for various other reasons, you know, whether it's for councils, whether it's uh, for, you know, solar, it's for insurance reasons, for tracking reasons, asset management reasons, um, and things like that. So it's a very interesting business, uh, has for a long time, it was primarily a 
AU, AU only business or mm. ANZ only business and has expanded into US. And it's been a really dominant business here in Australia. Um, there are a few others that do something similar, or at least one other that I know of that does something similar, but um, it's been dominant in Australia and they've been trying to recreate that success in the US. And that's really their story, right? US, US and they're in Canada as well now. Mm. So yeah, the, I think the issue with this one, the results, I think were looked, I would say look good, but I wouldn't say we're great. I'll again share my screen if I can. So annual, the thing. Annual, is there annualized contract value up 18%? Year over year, uh, what mm-hmm. have we got here? Uh, number number of subscriptions because they sell it on subscriptions up eight percent year over year. But I think you're about to talk about churn. Um, yes. Overheads <laughs> down fifteen percent or moving fifteen percent against them. Sorry. So yes. yeah, th- this was an interesting um, point that you had about uh, about churn. We're trying to work it out before we came on air. Yeah, so one of the things, like, so I like to look at this. So I'll give the company 100% marks here for being detailed in terms of what they release. So their analyst pack is actually very useful mm. because they, they provide a lot of data points that you can actually put in a spreadsheet or look at it and read it and study it and things like that. And and I think uh, the thing that <laughs> always confuses me is what they mean by retention. Uh, when they talk about re- retention, the definition basically says that they look at the retention of the annualized contract value. So what that means is you have a bunch of customers. Those customers have signed some deals with you. That translates into some amount of value for the year, right? And you want to see what percentage of that is retained. And I would guess that that includes upsell as well. So, so some customers might buy more from you. Some customers might leave, right? And you want to look at, you know, off the total that was in the beginning, how much do you have now? Right. So, the, you know, so ACV at the beginning minus churn plus upsell mm. is how I would think of retention. But that kind of, I don't think that math worked out that way. So I'm not really <laughs> sure what exactly is being reported here. Uh, and, you know, we only spent a few minutes or 10 minutes, maybe five minutes trying to figure this out. And retention rate is about 93% um, in, in FY21. And the second half was 93.1. Again, just pretty good. Then on the other hand, if you just look below that is this line on churn. This is actually an interesting one because it shows churn on a customer basis, right? Mm. And that's in a high 10%. Um, mm. You know, if you if you think about, um, you know, so, the- So one numbers. in every 10 leaving a year yeah. um, based on that subscriptions. Is, yeah. yeah. So that's a pretty high, which basically, again, when we talked about Elmo last week, that's sort of, you know, their issue as well, right? Higher churn. Uh, Zero has had the same issue. And this is basically pointing to a particular type of customer class, um, you know, small SMBs. And that makes sense, right? If you think of if if solar companies, you know, solar installers are the ones using it, maybe some of them go bankrupt. Some of them close their shop. Maybe COVID is not good for them. Example, right? As an example, or maybe you have some government customer that decides that, you, you know, we needed to survey something for some project. Now we no longer need to do that. And therefore we can discontinue the use. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. The churn levels and the you know and the higher the churn, this is not enterprise grade software in that sense. And the recurringness is a bit of a question mark here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing I would think about. But again, the opportunity in the US should be 15, 20 times of the opportunity here in AU. So that's a big market, more competition, of course. 
And, you know, there's a case to be made that what the ACV as reported at the end is around. So you, ACV's annual recurring revenue to some extent um, is about 133, 134 million. This is what the market cap of this company is probably a billion, I'm guessing off the top of my head. Owen, can you help me out? Yeah, I'll have a look. Uh, um, I think it's around a billion. So is it a billion or maybe less? One, one second. We are talking about the... 1.01 billion. So you were okay. zero point zero one billion off. I am take so marks good. off you for that one, mate. Yeah, I know, but I'm so good without even having. So you know, if you think on an ACV basis, it's about seven point five times. So this is more expensive relative to Elmo, right? Elmo, we said it was somewhere around four. Mm. <laughs> this is seven point five. Um, and so therefore, you know, market is probably thinking it's growing. It has a bigger market opportunity uh, relative to Elmo. But it's something to think about is, you know, what the valuation, what the right valuation for this company is, you know, and the potential could grow the ACV at maybe 20% um, uh, mm. per year. Because if you look at, look at this, is they roughly grew that much, right? 20, a little bit more than 20%, actually. Uh, 106 million last year to 134 million this year. So, and maybe this can continue for some time. So something to, again, output this company on, if you don't own it, put it on your watch list. Um, mm. You know, I'd think about return, but I'd also think about the multiples and sort of, you know, think about what it can do at steady state. I guess there's a bit of a cost component here to think about is, is you know, mm. you need to fly those planes and make those maps. And yeah. yeah, so it's not, it's not pure software um, in that sense. So it's mm. not, you know, again, something to think about. Those are, yeah. those are my comments really about this one. Yeah. So if last year, 2020 went, pretty severely backwards in terms of free cash flow, operating cash receipts, less all the stuff that goes into running the business. But then this year it broke even on a free cash flow basis. I was just doing the numbers as you're talking, $31 million of net operating cash flow, uh, but then subtract $2.3 million of PP&E, um, $11.8 million for development costs and $20 million for capture costs. And you get to just below. So it's free cash flow negative just um, but if it can keep growing, particularly in the, in the US, then that sh- should hit an inflection point on cash flow and should kind of rally through that. Um, there's another company on the ASX, which I know you, you alluded to earlier on, called Aerometrics, which is a much, much smaller company. Um, from my research, um, Aerometrics is a company we've recommended and since gone backwards a bit, but um, it's much, much higher risk Aerometrics because it's not as mature as Neomap. But from what I could tell, it seems to have better, clearer images and it doesn't have as wide a capture of Australia. Um, it does have a better 3D offering. So interesting state of the market in terms of going to, like a lot of the, the bigger use cases for infrastructure, for example, now are digital twins. And when you do a digital twin, so you have a map of the land, you want to be able to see it from multiple perspectives. And so 3D imagery is actually playing a bigger role in that. And so I think that's something to be mindful of too, is kind of like, where are the users going? Um, and we know that Metro map by Aerometric is actually growing quickly. Whereas it seems to me that near map it's growing, but it's, it's churned still pretty high. Um, not that it's terrible, but just something to be mindful of. Um, okay, mate. So we've chatted for forever. It's, I love it, but let's get to some so, stock. So we basically give an extra stock tip. We basically we gave an extra one. We've given heaps today, but um, let's 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 give ourselves let's time ourselves. Maybe a sixty second pitch, maybe ninety seconds for you because yours might be new to people. But um, I'll go for my final one, which is um, 
AVA, AVA Risk Group or AVA Global, um, however you want to define it, ASX AVA is a ticket code. We were having a chat um, on, on Twitter before. Uh, it's just sold off one of its divisions, which was kind of like a, an armored guard type outsourcing services business. Um, and now it's focusing on its future fiber technologies. FFT, I spoke to Rob, who was the CEO not too long ago, and it didn't make the cut for our Rockets program, but um, because it was so lumpy and it was a bit kind of, the cohesion wasn't there um, across the divisions, but um, really interesting business. Basically, I'll give you the short version. It's got this new tech, it's called Aura IQ. And uh, what it does is it's fiber technology that runs around like the perimeter of a building or on a conveyor belt. And it can determine where on that conveyor belt um, one of the bearings might have broken based on vibrations or based on like security, um, if it's on a perimeter fence or something like that. It can even detect if people are walking on the surface of the ground, if it's buried below the ground, and it can be installed on existing fiber cables. So if you have broadband or something running around, it can actually be used for that as well uh, through that same network. So it's a really interesting business called Ava Risk, still really early stage the pivot's kind of venture capital-like in that it hasn't really signed any major deals for RIQ, although FFT is growing. It's going to have a bit of cash by the looks of it. AVA Risk Group, um, aka AVA Global, ASX, AVA, that's mine. What have you got for us? Well, I've got a uh, technology company called Upstart listed in, in, in the NASDAQ. Uh, code is UPST. And what they do is they basically work with banks. So they're basically a software company. They work with banks to help them decide whether or not a person should get a loan. Right. And, and just to set the context, in the US, people use something called a FICO score, which is like a credit score, basically. Yep. Um, and the FICO score is often, you know, the be all end all sort of thing. But then FICO score hides a lot of things, right? So you're not looking at, you know, so these guys are basically looking at a bunch of data points, your past history in terms of, you know, your education and things, your job. And they're using algorithms to basically decide whether or not what, whether or not you should be approved for a loan and at what rate. Right. So there's, there's two, you know, and then of course they have repayment data that flows through that that allows them to sort of fine tune these algorithms. Um, the other really interesting thing about their process is 72% of the loans that they approve do not have any human intervention. This is hmm. all automated. Right. And, you know, they expect that to move up a little bit more creep up. But that, again, from a lending perspective is very interesting. Is So they're currently in what they, what is called in the US known as a personal loan space, which is a, you know, it's basically, you know, trying to consolidate, say, credit cards and other very high value, high interest loan items into a package to loan at a lower interest rate and allow people to sort of get out of debt. That's a huge market. And they've just recently gotten into um, uh, auto lending. Plus, can I recently reported earnings? Have a look at the earnings. You know, the earnings grew. Um, I think the earnings line grew by one thousand percent or something like that. Something ridiculous. This is a this is a, a relatively small company from a U.S. perspective. Uh, if you you know tens of billion dollars of market 16 capitalization, sixteen and a half billion. Sixteen and a half billion market capitalization, but growing at about hundred percent plus, profitable with with pretty high margins, uh, contribution margins in the high. 40% or maybe even actually more than that. Um, um, you know, again, I call it one of those businesses that can potentially be a very large fintech, but that's because of sort of their approach to, they're not anti-bank or fighting banks. They're working with banks to bring them, you know, bring the 5,000 year old industry into the modern age. Mm. That's the pitch. Yeah. I like it. Upstart, UPST. Um, I was just looking at Yahoo Finance. I very rarely go on Yahoo Finance. They present the 
the the most recent on the left column and the <laughs> oldest on the right hand. So I'm reading back to front. I can't, I don't know why some companies and, and I, I, I don't know. I, my preference is reading left to right. Um, yes. <laughs> so, and always, I have seen that in a few other places and it really throws you off. Like you yeah. said, but that doesn't sound, that doesn't, oh, going because backwards. You've, you're going backwards, you know, and then and some of them at least have a column that you, or a tab that you can hit called reverse, reverse order it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, but it is, it can be really frustrating. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so the PE for this company might be like 200 or something. But mm-hmm. again, if you think of the growth rates, it, it you know, next, if you look forward, it probably is not that high. So mm-hmm. anyways. Okay, great. Upstart. Run for, so we've covered, um, we've covered the jobless rate, Chinese tech, um, being in lockdown, how much fun that is. Redbubble, CSL, ProMedicus, NetWealth, NearMap. Uh, we had mentioned Aerometrics in there and Hub. Um, talked about Ava Risk Group or Ava Global and Upstart UPST. Man, that's a lot to cover in one day, but thank you as always. That was heaps of fun. And, and we did talk about Apple. And oh, we just and we didn't mention Apple. We did. Yeah, because now, now the elephant the problem, in the room. The, elephant, the problem really is that, you know, um, you seem to be just much, as much of an Apple fan as I am. So we don't have a debate anymore. We just agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll bring some counterpoints when they don't. So there's some rumors about the products. Maybe we can wait till they actually launch the products, but maybe we can bring the pros and cons when they bring out the new. The new I love line. the Apple Watch and I love my Air, AirPods yeah. Max. Someone at, the, at, at work did actually say that you've got, and for those, I apologize for those of you that are just listening on the podcast, but you've got the new Apple headphones as well. Has I've that transcended your listening experience? Well, what can I say? So the new spatial audio thing is marvelous. And, uh, you know, it really, really changes how you perceive sound. And uh, yeah, if you watch content on spatial audio, it is something. So I actually quite love it. But there's, you know, uh, they remaster some old stuff into spatial audio, which is really, really cool. And then a lot of new stuff is coming in spatial audio. Spatial audio is really fun. And all of Apple's keynotes are on spatial audio. So, you, you know. You tilt your head and it seems like the sound is coming from a, in a slightly different direction. You get different, you know, you hear slightly huh. differently on each. It's just, mar- it actually works with your Air, AirPods as well. It doesn't have to be with AirPods Max. Um, Sold. Sold. It's fantastic. There goes one one extra piece of inventory of Apple's books. Um, wonderful, mate. As always, thanks for, oh, wait, no. We've got one more thing. How can people find out about 7investing? Ah, easy. Just go to 7investing.com. That's it. Can't forget that. And that we ought to get that free report, hopefully, in the next few days. Get in. Oh, and how did, how did they find Rask? You're not telling them that. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. Um, <laughs> Rask.com.au. That's R-A-S-K.com.au. You can find out more about our subscriptions and all that stuff there. And um, we'll be back next week. So next, jump on Twitter and say good day and um, tell us what we got wrong and what we got right. So love to hear from you. Thanks, mate, as always, for joining me. Thanks, man. Cheers. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, 
or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.